Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and for those hosting us for this conference, thank you so, so much for all your help. So I normally am getting better known for speaking about conflict site damage, but actually my background is in monitoring damage in peace. And that's what I want to speak to you about today. I'm actually going to look at a damage type that focuses on an entire historic landscape to place it in its context. And what I want to look at is the impact of irrigation on the Iraqi Jazeera since the 1960s with a particular case study, looking at the impact on the sites and the impact on a particular type of feature, hollowways, because we talk a lot about the big sites, but I want to put them in their wider context. And through this, I want to give an overview of the different types of site damage to contextualize some of the problems we talked about over the last two days. Just, I want to start also by saying this is some collaborative research. Uh, it builds on work by Dr. Jason Err of Harvard, by the late Professor Tony Wilkinson and Professor Graham Phillip with the Fragile Crescent Project at Durham University and also with Dan Lawrence there. And also with um, what will be my co-author on the paper that's about to come out for this, uh, Michelle de Grouchy. So when we talk about dams, we focus a lot on the tells that are very obvious in the valleys, on the really big sites, and we do a lot of work on those big, impressive sites. This is the Hasaki Dam in Syria in 2010, and we can sort of see the erosion of the site, um, and you know, the tells that are in the center of the, the dam basin. But actually, what we do far less is look at the effects of those uh, inundation projects outside the dam area. And that's what I want to look at now as a best practice case study, actually. So in 1980, construction began on what is now called the Eskimosal Dam, completed in 1984. And uh, in 1986, the North Jazeera Irrigation Project began, and the whole area was designated a rescue zone. Now, you can see it here with the dam in the top right, and the yellow area indicates the rescue zone. This is the survey project that was done. It was British, Japanese, um, a lot of work by the Iraq State Board, and another project that's just gone out of my head. Uh, and you can see here the 184 sites that they identified. But this was the irrigation network that was implemented. And you can see all the channels that were planned and dug in here using large irrigation trenches. Now, in 1995, the area was actually very sparsely settled, and there were maybe 6,000 people living on the plain. But this irrigation plan called for an extensive network of concrete channels, pipelines, feeder roads, agricultural complexes, new settlements, and massive mechanical irrigators. Together with the resulting multi-cropping that began, the landscape and its archaeological sites were drastically altered. Although the excavation of these large irrigation concrete channels allowed the discovery and recording of many more sites that were buried under the changing ground level than we could ever have found otherwise, it also did extensive damage. Now, what I want to look at is just as a, an example, season one of the work that was done to actually look at 
outside of these channels through the sites, what else happened in this area? So this is Tel Alhawa. It was the center of uh, the case study I'm using. And it was surveyed by the British for four years from uh, 1986 to 1990. And I want to look at what happened then 25 years on after that survey. These are the sites they recorded in season one in their context. Uh, and you can see the areas around them. So they found 30 sites and they recorded that six villages were already, six sites were already partially obscured by villages. Five were cut by canals. Three sites had already been bulldozed and one more was cut by a modern road. So we looked at them in the 1960s on the corona imagery and we also looked at them on Google Earth in 2004. And this is Tel Alhawa today with some of the sites surrounding it. And as you can see, it's a very heavily farmed area. So what we have now, agriculture has very clearly intensified. 19 sites are barely visible now. Only four of the sites they identified are more or less the same as they were in the 1960s. The villages have expanded. And many more of the sites, both in this area and in the wider survey area and beyond it, have been bulldozed for gravity-fed irrigation, which requires a flat surface. So we're actually starting to see not the loss of one site or two sites, but the loss of an entire landscape that has been preserved since the Bronze Age period and potentially older, as I'm going to show you in a moment. Although I will say, though, there was almost no evidence of looting occurring in the area. Just to zoom in on a couple of specific examples, this is Tel Alhawa on the 1969 corona imagery. You can see the main mound highlighted visibly in the middle. There's a village to the right of it. And the sort of blurry areas around it are the outer town. Okay. The site itself, when it was recorded, the mound covered about 18 hectares. It's about six meters high. And it's Hasuna to Islamic phases. The summit was already disturbed by heavy machinery. There's a modern cemetery on the site, which actually does act to protect it, even if obviously we would not ever excavate there. And there were deep erosion gullies. The area of the archeological area actually covers about 80 hectares, including the outer town. But already, even in the 60s, the site is surrounded on three sides by agricultural fields and obviously the village of Hawa to the east. Uh, the sort of blurry splodges to the bottom left and the top right are sites seven and eight, which you can also see stand out quite clearly on this. And to help you visualize it, uh, the red is the sites in the outer town indicated here to give you an idea of the size. And this is it in 2004. Firstly, notice how much the village has increased. We measured it, it's more than doubled. The lower town is now effectively buried or destroyed. A canal cuts through the area to the north, and the lower mounds in many of the areas are completely gone. 
we need to be careful when we record damage to these sites. We talk a lot about the damage to the main tells, and in a lot of survey notes I find when I look at this, we completely ignore the outer town because it's not so obvious, not so visible, and we don't tend to focus our excavations there. We look at what is often the older periods rather than this later period occupation, which is just as important. I point out to you as well that Site 7 and 8 are also mostly gone. Zooming in, Site 8 was very distinctive and has now been bulldozed away. When we look at Helwardan to give you an idea of the development damage going on, you can see that both, uh, as was seen in the last presentation, one side of the tail has been removed for soil extraction and development is cutting very heavily into the side of the mound, completely destroying it. But as well as these big sites, what I want to focus on a little bit is the features that surround them, that bring the landscape together, because as archaeologists, it's our job not just to understand one site, but to look at how these sites fit in the wider landscape and how the entirety of human occupation is represented. So I'm going to focus instead for the second half on hollowways. So looking at this contour map, you can actually see that not only is the site surrounded by a network of wadis, which are the blue lines running up and down, but diagonally across it are these lines highlighted in green, which are the ancient routeways around the site. They're almost invisible from the ground, but are very easy to identify from corona satellite imagery and aerial photographs. So what's happened to them in the intervening period? The story of the Holloways begins at least 5,000 years ago, as people took their herds to pasture going to and from their fields. And these traveling people became, their paths became so numerous as they went back and forth every day that they actually wore down the tracks to still be visible 5,000 years later. And whilst we can't see them today, thanks to the changing ground levels, the photo on the right gives you an idea of what they would have looked like before the, uh, these days they have largely been infilled by rain, silt, and uh, in some cases mechanized plowing. So they've obviously gone out of use today, but we've been able to map them. And by we, I should say, I actually mean what I will present is largely based on the work of Dr. Jason Err, who has mapped the Holloway network across the entirety of the Jazeera. And what looks like lots of black lines absolutely everywhere is a 5,000-year-old system of roads and routes connecting all the sites, towns, and villages in this area. And he was kind enough to provide me with the shape files for this part of the study. So we selected a tiny little subset to look at as an example. And we're just going to use three routes connecting the sites, which I hope show up here uh, in orange. And you can see that they've connected a tiny network of sites. The reason we picked these routes uh, was actually for part of Michelle's research and doesn't really matter here. Uh, this is not all of them, this is just a subset. Uh, the bottom route, Route C, actually goes on to connect with the North Assyrian Highway, and they cover a huge area. So this is what we think they were originally. Jason Err mapped them, and you can see here now there are already gaps appearing. This is all that was visible in the 1960s. And then I've remapped it on Google Earth. 
and this is all that's left in 2004. Bringing these together, and I hope this shows up, the orange lines show the original estimated routes, the red lines are the routes that were mapped by Wilkinson and Err, and the sort of little black bits where it's hopefully clearest is what remains today on Google Earth. So of our three routes, Route C is the least well preserved. Less than 17% of it remains today, and by today I mean 2004. Uh, route A is the best preserved, 53%. Less than a third of this section of the original route network remains. So we wanted to ask why that is. What has affected the preservation? So we thought the first thing to ask would be, well, okay, how well used were these routes? Were some parts uh, particularly heavily used so they're going to remain more visible for a longer period? We didn't include settlement size as an indicator of uh, use because other studies have shown there's very little correlation between size of settlement and uh, the occupation that occurred there. But we did look at how many periods they were occupied in to indicate how long it may have remained in use. Obviously, sites on some routes were occupied during more periods than sites on other routes. Sites on Route A were occupied for the fewest periods sites on Route B were occupied the most. And so we can kind of make guesses about how much traffic there might have been and uh, which parts of which routes saw the most use as people walked along them. But a potentially greater amount of use and therefore a deeper and wider and more slowly infilled Holloway has nothing to do with preservation. The sites on Route A are occupied during the fewest periods but it's one that has the greatest level remaining, both in the 1960s and today. So then we thought, okay, 5,000 years, maybe the water has quite simply washed it away and it's eroded. Obviously, the Jazeera has a very gentle slope and contouring shows that it's continuous and is particularly susceptible to erosion. Drainage features form very easily, affecting these man-made hollowways. So for example, uh, we have a segment of Holloway visible here between uh, Site 91 and Site 19, which is the bottom green line going sort of diagonally across the middle of the page. And um, what you can see here is that these routes do conduct a certain amount of water. None of them, however, are on a direct east-west line following the contours. But we did think, well, okay, Route B does run northeast, southwest. Maybe that's been eroded by the water. Well, erratic rainfall in the area is normal, but it's unlikely to have eroded the site at all. Um, the red arrow indicates the hollow way with Site 9 in the middle of the two red arrows, and the blue arrow indicates the wadi, sort of coming down from the right-hand side towards the sites. The drainage tributaries do cross the hollowways in several places. That will have channeled the water away from the roots, and we can see this elsewhere as well. This is not to say erosion played no part, only that it is not the sole or even the most likely contributor to the loss of these features. Today, that route is almost completely gone. The most likely source of damage is, of course, the recent effects of human settlement the irrigation network and the ensuing multi-cropping has completely altered it. Cotton, for example, is an increasingly common crop 
which is very thirsty, requiring its own irrigation furrows. And even these small, shallow furrows are extremely destructive. THHS8 is a Halaf site in Syria, where these small, shallow furrows were recorded that they had completely destroyed the mounding of the site, masked the lighter color of the anthropogenic soil, and reduced shard visibility, making the site almost impossible to find. This slide indicates the Food and Agriculture Organization's estimates of the total agricultural area in Iraq. It's remained more or less the same, actually, despite the irrigation programs. The number of tractors, which is the blue line, has increased significantly, however. In 1961, there were 3,300 tractors, and by 2000, there were more than 46,000 tractors in Iraq. The total area equipped for irrigation has also steadily increased from just under 3% of the land in 1961 to 8% in 2011. And that's actually almost half of the agricultural land today is heavily irrigated, presumably due to the steady decline in the levels of the Euphrates and the Tigris, the increasing pressure on the groundwater exacerbated by the severe drought that has hit the Middle East. Northern Iraq, it must be said, has been particularly badly affected by the water shortages, and this has led to an increased need for local people to irrigate their land to help the crops grow. Obviously, this gravity-fed irrigation, however, does need a flat surface, and this is why we see such intensive bulldozing of the sites. As shallow features, the hollowways, of course, are particularly susceptible to earth moving. But of course, all of this was done to increase the agriculture. It's more intensive, more widespread. No hollowways now are in land that is unused. Everything is in agricultural land. This area has been plowed since at least the 1960s. And that is with proper tractor plowing for at least 50 years. We often talk about how that can bring sites to the surface, make them more visible, churning up the soils. But in the case of hollowways, there is nothing to see. It will simply destroy the site. Even the wadis today are plowed out, as you can perhaps see here. Um, the purple arrow that doesn't show up very well is indicating a wadi that has been completely plowed flat. And the blue line is the hollow way that once went along there. Double cropping is now standard practice, increasing the erosion rates of the sites and features because the soil is now open and has very little time to regrow any kind of cover that might protect it. And this is probably what is actually responsible for the final demise in most of the Holloways. We also see increasing development. Uh, th this slide shows the increasing number of people settling in this area. We looked at the settlements around the Holloways. These are all the little sort of purple outlines indicated on the slide. Um, we looked at them within four kilometers of the Holloways and discovered that they have increased by 53%. 19 settlements covering 478 hectares in 1967 to 21 settlements covering 1,017 hectares, increasing massively to cover this area. This doesn't include any of the small single farmsteads, which are also extremely numerous. On Corona and the aerial photographs, most of these routes were outside the settlements. 5% of Route A is now covered. 
nearly 20% of route B and nearly 10% of route C, completely destroying the features. Roads have also damaged the hollowways. There are a lot of small tracks that are easily visible on Corona, visible from their white upcast, and actually they sort of follow the old hollowway routes of the ways that people used to take the tracks out into the fields. But as the focus on the area have increased, many have fallen out of use, been graveled, been tarmacked. But even the simple tracks where people walk erode sites, there's been quite a few studies of the level of erosion just by people walking over sites in the UK. But in this case, actually, the irrigation network's actually been quite helpful. Because you have to go all the way round to cross the irrigation channels, the roads now follow the edges of the irrigation and have left the channels largely alone. But what this showed was that there's actually no discernible reason why some route segments have survived and others are lost. The original size and depth of the routeways is, must be a factor, but none of these sites were particularly large or particularly noticeable when we looked at them. But it's many of the routes that were deep enough to have been visible on the contour maps that survived best today, whilst others have left no trace at all. Seasonality clearly plays a factor. Some features are clearer due to the increased moisture levels on certain satellite images, but that covers only a very small part of the area we looked at. It's tempting to suggest that the study be repeated as more and better imagery becomes available, but with each year passes, more of the features are lost. The survival of them is dependent on extremely localized factors. No broader determinants account for the loss or survival of the segments, and therefore all the remains must be considered at equal risk. But I also drew some wider conclusions from this study. The first is that when we talk about site destruction, we generalize it and we oversimplify it. Heritage is everywhere and it comes in many forms. Perhaps we need to think about whether we need to distinguish about why we're looking at particular sites. Is it for their scientific importance? Is it for their religious importance? Is it for their community importance? We also need to specify how we are forming the samples for the sites that we discuss so that when we give our numbers and our statistics, we know what it was based on so that it's comparable to other areas. We need to remember that site damage is dependent on site type. A building is damaged in a very different way to a mud brick tell, which in turn is damaged in a very different way to the lower town around it and in turn that's different to the features that surround it that make up the landscape. We need to remember that site damage is frequently linked to social circumstances, to the conditions of the people living in those areas and the environmental factors and economic circumstances that affect them and to formulate plans that actually take those into account looking at the needs of the people. And we need to remember that site damage is spatially variable. There are differences in all the different areas, and therefore any policies we make that look at site damage have to be formulated with care and be locally relevant in order to have any effect. But we can see that satellite imagery can be used to gain a detailed understanding of how transformation processes affect sites over time. Importantly, given the phenomenal changes sweeping the area, 
It also creates a benchmark for us to assess previous and future damage to sites to understand how the change occurs at what rate. It provides us with a local picture in an increasingly globalized world, and this can be used to give us evidence-based policy making that is so important when resources are so limited. And lastly, I'd like to finish by highlighting that the World Bank indicators do suggest Iraq's population is increasing. The rural population accounts for about a third of the total population and rural population growth is actually increasing more than urban population growth, putting increased pressure on the limited agricultural land available. It's used more intensively, fewer fallow periods, more agriculture. And this is reflected in the growing number of people who have a real and important need for food and housing. But it does pose a serious threat to the sites and to the features that surround them. Given this, the approach advocated by projects like Amina, which highlight the importance of satellite imagery in recording and the need to build up these bigger pictures to understand everything in its wider context, are becoming of increasing importance. So I'd actually like to finish by offering our very sincere thanks for the opportunity to come over here and to work with the students and staff of AUIS and the University of Sully to teach them what we believe are these really vital techniques and to say what a truly great pleasure it was to be able to come over here and have that opportunity to work with you. Thank you very much.